The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Hello and welcome to this podcast from the European Patent Office, in which we will be discussing a recent report on patenting trends for hydrogen technologies. Now, innovation in hydrogen is booming, not just in production, but also in storage and applications. But which countries and sectors are in the lead? And what are the challenges to the hydrogen revolution? My name is Jeremy Philpott, and I work in communication at the European Patent Office. I'm fascinated by the stories told by statistics. Joining me today are two experts who complement each other perfectly. Firstly, Jan Menier is Chief Economist here at the European Patent Office. Jan's team investigate and analyze economic data in combination with patent metrics. They do this in relation to particular sectors or technologies, producing reports that are essential reading for policymakers and business leaders. Welcome, Jan. Hello, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Simon Bennett, technology analyst at the International Energy Agency in Paris. Established almost 50 years ago, just like the EPO, the IEA helps its member governments to develop energy policies for a secure and sustainable future. The agency analyzes international trends and outlooks for demand and supply across all fuels and technologies, offering policy recommendations. Simon and his team co-authored the report with Jan, so his insights will be very valuable. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Simon. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jan. Great to be here. So, I think, firstly, it's worth reminding ourselves just why is hydrogen so important right now? Simon? Yeah, it's a great place to start, and I'd like to place this in the context of just exactly what's happening today in energy markets, because we're in a really unique moment, and it's an unfortunate one. We're caught still in what is perhaps the first global energy crisis. People are suffering hardship around the world. The, uh, the prices of, of many energy commodities are very high, and people are concerned about where they're going to get their gas from, uh, especially in Europe. And it's very hard to move away from an existing energy infrastructure to a completely new one. We're still very dependent on natural gas. And so as policymakers are thinking through what their response is to this energy crisis, alongside solutions like energy efficiency, renewable electricity, they're actually turning very quickly to look at hydrogen as a possible replacement for for natural gas, certainly in, in heavy industries and putting in place policies that are going to stimulate investment. Because hydrogen can actually be used directly to make fertilizers and in the chemical industry, places where we currently use natural gas. And you'll see things like the Repower EU plan from the European Commission or the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States pick up hydrogen as a core topic alongside other ones. And so that shows that it's, you know, it, it's no longer, as it has often been talked about, a fuel for the far future. People are trying to stimulate investment in hydrogen today. Hydrogen production is not always necessarily clean, is it? Sometimes hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels. Yeah, the reason why we're looking to move towards something like hydrogen is because when you use hydrogen, when it releases energy, the only byproduct that you get is water. In, you're combining hydrogen with oxygen. It's an oxidation reaction. And so the, you know, the maximum pollution here uh, is something as benign as, as water. But as you said, it's currently produced from fossil fuels largely from natural gas, but also from coal. And the 94 million tons of hydrogen that are produced around the world today 
actually lead to 900 million tons of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. And that's a significant contribution when the total CO2 emissions you know, are somewhere between 35 and 40 billion tons per year. Right. So for me, there's a sort of disconnect. You know, we talk about, oh, we want net zero for carbon emissions by 2050. If hydrogen production, at least currently, is going to be contributing to carbon emissions, how is hydrogen seen as a, something to help us in the future? Well, that's because we can produce hydrogen from other ways. We don't have to get it from directly from fossil fuels. Uh, there's actually a way of using electricity to produce hydrogen from water. And in the production process, it doesn't produce any emissions at all. So there is a way, and there are examples of this operating around the world right now, of producing hydrogen without emissions and using hydrogen without emissions. Those are the criteria that we're placing on our energy resources for the middle of the century. And you mentioned, Jeremy, this target of getting to net zero emissions by the middle of the century. And that's the target that is considered to be consistent with the, the Paris Agreement on climate change, the temperature rise that we, we want to limit ourselves to. And it's a target that many governments have all around the world for, for reaching almost zero emissions by the middle of the century or, or shortly thereafter. And the great news is that we have almost all of the technologies we need to get started, whether it's energy efficiency or renewables, electric vehicles, for example. But when we look at what it's going to take to get the last emissions out of the energy system over the coming decades, we actually see there's a number of technologies that are not currently freely available on the market. You, you can't just go and buy them off the shelf. And we've been trying to convey to our member governments and others the importance of innovation, the importance of new technologies, whether it's in hydrogen or in other things. And we found that a great receptivity to this message of needing to, you know, to prime the pump, to improve the, the pipeline of new technologies that are coming through so that we can drive down costs, improve competitiveness and get the technologies in all of these sectors, all of these different applications, for, you know, in large part for transporting renewable energy into some of these different applications, whether it's in transport or industry. And our governments are now asking us, well, how do we know how we're doing? How do we measure our progress? Being able to look at research spending, being able to look at investment, but also being able to look at patents is extremely important here. And that's the reason why we value so much our partnership with the EPO on projects like this. It's very kind of you to say. What I'm, I'm getting from this is that essentially the technologies that we have today are never going to be enough to get us to net zero. Clearly, then we need to be looking at what are the technologies which are still in early stage development or haven't even been conceived yet that need to get us to that point, because these are the things that we need to be watching out for and nurturing and encouraging. And patent data is a great way for looking at technology trends which have not yet reached maturity and hit the market. Yes, uh, patents are probably the most uh, advanced indicator of uh, industrial innovation. As the European Patent Office, so the, the Patent Office for, for Europe, uh, we can definitely help in, uh, in uh, using this, uh, this information to help the, the IEA understand what are the, the latest trends in those technologies. Practically, we have access to the largest uh, database of, uh, of patent documentation, but uh, the EPU also have uh, 4,000 examiners who are all experts in their respective fields and who have the, the ability to search patent documentation in a very precise way to identify whatever technology we need to understand and to monitor. So the, the challenge for us was to pair with uh, IA experts who have the, the big picture, who are able to, to tell us what are the, the most important technology areas, technology fields 
that we need to track and to, to generate the, the patent information that matches these technology fields that are important from a policy perspective. Okay, so IEA are telling us where to look, and uh, for the EPO part, we can then go and do the analysis. So, Jan, if we're going to be using patents to show us how technology trends are developing, we have in the study this metric that you're using, IPFs, and I think some of our listeners won't have come across this term before. So it would be helpful if you could clarify that and RTAs that seems to be about the performance of particular countries in comparison with each other. So it's important first to bear in mind that patents are territorial rights. So your same invention may be protected by different patents in different uh, jurisdictions, which makes it difficult for us to determine how to count patents and how to compare the, the number of uh, patented inventions. So the methodology we have defined for this study and also for the, the previous study we have carried out with the IEA on batteries and low carbon energy is based on the identification of uh, so-called international patent families that is, uh, inventions that are protected by patents in at least two different uh, jurisdictions. This makes it possible to track inventions that have high commercial potential because they have been protected internationally. But this is also very convenient in order to make international comparisons because we neutralize the differences between the national patent systems and thereby we can compare the number of international patent families generated by one country versus uh, another one. So this is all designed to enable international comparisons. And then the next step for such comparison is to account for the size of a country. Of course, uh, the US or Japan are very large countries, very large innovation countries, and therefore they have a large number of international patent families by, by definition. So we need uh, somehow to take into account this size effect in order to identify any specialization pattern. And to do that, we compute the, the revealed technology advantage, which is the ratio of the number of international patent families in hydrogen in that country versus the, the number of uh, international patent families in other technology fields that are also coming from that country. Uh, so comparison against the baseline then? Exactly. Right. Very good. If we apply that uh, that concept, we see, for instance, that uh, among the largest uh, innovating countries or inv innovative regions like uh, Japan, the US or Europe, uh, the US is certainly a large contributor, but has no specialization, according to patent data in hydrogen technologies, whereas uh, Europe and Japan are more specialized and have been very dynamic, as a matter of fact, in that uh, in that kind of technology during the past decade. Yeah, but if I could just jump in there and, and add something to what Jan has said, one of the great things about studying an area that's as dynamic as hydrogen is right now is that we're seeing the new invention side, different regions having leadership in, in different technologies at the same time as we're starting to see the starts of investment and commercialization and the building of factories and value chains around the world. And so I suppose that the, the caveat to this conclusion around the United States is that the US has recently unveiled a policy package that's actually going to draw quite a lot of investment, I think, to US manufacturing for hydrogen technologies and to deployment. It's going to be very interesting to see which technologies from rich regions are going to get deployed with that kind of policy support. And talking about you know value chains, and obviously that, that starts with production of hydrogen. I think of hydrogen as being super abundant on planet Earth, but I'm thinking in terms of hydrogen atoms, because I know there are hydrogen atoms in water, 70% of the Earth's surface is ocean, so surely there's lots of hydrogen to be had. But hydrogen has to be made, you need, you know, need to be able to extract it from 
whether it's coming from water via electrolysis or it's coming from fossil fuels, so that you get molecular hydrogen H two um, that, that you you can you can work with. Well, we're getting into a level of geekiness here that I'm very comfortable with. So thank you for that, Jeremy, <laughs> because you're absolutely right. And we can go further than water. I mean, atomic hydrogen is everywhere, everything we touch almost. Plastics, chemicals, they all have hydrogen, wood, organic matter. We're full of hydrogen ourselves. But that's not of great use. We can't mine that hydrogen. What's useful in terms of the energy sector is to have a molecule that you can produce, as you said, and you can store and you can move around, and then you can release the energy that's contained in it at a, at a later date or in a different place. That's not always easily done you know, everywhere on the, on the planet. There are places that, just like fossil fuels, that have lower resources, and there are places that will have more abundant resources of different ways. But the great thing about hydrogen is that you can produce it cleanly from a variety of different inputs. And you mentioned electrolysis. If you want to do that cleanly, you're going to need you know, cheap electricity and a source of water. But you can also make hydrogen from fossil fuels, from the natural gas that we use today, cleanly if you capture the CO2 emissions that are coming out of the chimney as that part of the process, if I, if I simplify it a little bit. And if those emissions are captured, piped to a suitable location and stored deep underground, then we can also classify that type of hydrogen as being low emissions as well. And what we've seen in the patent data is there's a number of different uh, competing processes for producing hydrogen cleanly. It's a little bit counterintuitive. Electrolysis is only as green as the source electricity that's used to power the electrolyzer. If you know, if the electricity is coming off a coal-fired power station, <laughs> we're still no better off. But if that electricity is coming from solar or wind energy, happy days. And equally, getting hydrogen from natural gas is not necessarily not green, provided you couple it with some really effective and efficient carbon capture. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And the it's 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 worse than you. Say, if you're getting it from your electricity from a fossil fuel source, it's very likely to be more polluting to do that than simply produce it from natural gas. And the fact that the product you're making, hydrogen, is indistinguishable once you've made it, regardless of how you produced it, has given rise to an extremely complex lexicon of different ways of classifying and talking about hydrogen. So you mentioned hydrogen produced from renewable electricity. A lot of people call that green hydrogen. Uh, but if you just plug your electrolyzer into the electricity grid, we don't call that green hydrogen. We don't even have a color that labels it. <laughs> if we're getting it from nuclear electricity, you know, people are calling that pink hydrogen or red hydrogen. <laughs> if you're decomposing natural gas into carbon and hydrogen using plasma pyrolysis, then that's called turquoise hydrogen. We're getting into you know, a whole rainbow of different hydrogens. And just to say that we haven't used that color terminology in this report because technologies themselves are colorblind. The electrolyzer you know, doesn't know at the time it's invented what type of electricity is going to go into it. So we've, we've tried to find ways of classifying the, the technologies in terms of what their potential is rather than you know, how much subsidy they should be getting depending on the emissions. Yeah, but then I'd like to come to Jan. If we're now talking about production and all, all these different ways of production and this rainbow of different color classifications that goes with it, what is the patent data showing us, Jan? Uh, what are we seeing from the study? So we, we know that today hydrogen is basically produced from fossil fuels. But the, the very good news from the report is that innovation has already shifted towards uh, cleaner forms of uh, hydrogen production. Actually, it's a massive shift. And uh, in the latest years, around 2020, about 80% of the inventions related to hydrogen production were dedicated to 
decarbonized hydrogen. And this is largely driven by electrolysis. There has been a boom of innovation in electrolysis with a growth rate of about 10% per year during the, the past decade. And this innovation is targeting the production of hydrogen on a large scale. We know uh, already how to produce hydrogen, but the, the challenge is to industrialize that process massively. And we have interesting uh, patterns at the country level. So this is clearly where Japan and Europe stand out, but with different directions of, uh, of innovation to some extent. Japan is very much focused on uh, one new technology for electrolysis, so-called PEM, which is very close actually to what is, uh, is used also in fuel cells for automotive. And as a matter of fact, we see the same industry players, mainly from the automotive industry, active in Japan in innovation in these technologies. And Europe is slightly different. Europe has a tradition of hydrogen production as an established industry with the traditional technologies, with companies specialized like Air Liquide or Linde. But it's also very dynamic when it comes to new technologies for electrolysis. And with a, with a more diverse focus with technologies like PEM, like in Japan, but also SOEC, for instance, which is alternative, where the, the CEA, the French Research Center, is in the lead. And uh, the good news also for Europe is that uh, Europe is uh, very advanced in terms of uh, manufacturing projects. So when we compare also the available data on uh, investments in uh, manufacturing capacity for new electrolyzers, we see that uh, Japan, albeit very advanced in terms of patenting, is somehow lagging in terms of investment in the manufacturing capacity, while Europe uh, has been very active so far in the past uh, in the past years, and uh, and so is very well positioned in terms of cross combination of patent position and uh, manufacturing positions. It's interesting also to contrast to to other countries. China has invested a lot in uh, electrolysis production capacities. But when we look at the patent data, they are not very present. And actually, when we look more closely at their investment in capacity, it's mainly in the alkaline technology, which is the, the rather old electrolysis technology that is less suitable to, to large-scale production uh, forward looking. So, Jan, you were talking there about some of the Japanese automotive companies have been active in hydrogen production. And you know, this is because they're interested in fuel cells to be used in trucks and cars, for example. What other uses are we seeing foreseen for hydrogen? Actually, there is a, a wide range of uh, potential applications of uh, hydrogen. Some of them are already well known and established, like uh, methanol or ammonia production. Simon was referring a bit earlier to the production of fertilizers using uh, ammonia. There are also potential applications in uh, transportation, you, we know we talked about automotive that could uh, also apply to long distance transportation. And that is the main challenge, uh, in fact, to decarbonize long distance trans transportation. And there are also other applications in uh, hard to abate industries, such as production of uh, steel or heating can also be applied uh, in, uh, in buildings for domestic uh, applications or for electric generation, electricity generation. So it's a very wide range of uh, potential applications and uh, we need to monitor all of them. So we tracked all of them in the study. And clearly, uh, automotive standards stands out, as uh, already mentioned. There has been a boom of uh, innovation in fuel cells for, for automotive, mainly driven by Japanese companies. Also, Korean companies are very active in that field. And uh, to some extent, we also see uh, an interesting positive trend in uh, steel manufacturing using hydrogen, with uh, increasing integration of different technology options, different technology strategies into new equipment. But in the other fields, 
it's uh, less dynamic. It still has to, to take off. And uh, this is a, a concern forward looking because we need to align the demand for hydrogen with the forthcoming production of, uh, of decarbonized uh, hydrogen. Yeah. So again, availability of hydrogen is, is the sort of chicken and egg for trying to encourage more people to use hydrogen uh, and, and find other ways to use it. Yeah. It's all about connecting the dots. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other issue is that you know, if, if production is going to scale up, the, the hydrogen needs to be stored. I can't see petrol stations easily switching over into being places where you go and get another cylinder of hydrogen to stick in your vehicle. So I'm assuming there needs to be a technology evolution then going on in storage. Yeah, let me take that one because storage is so important. In fact, I would go as far as to say that storage is the whole point of looking at hydrogen in the first place. We have a fantastic technology, which is called electricity, which you can make cleanly and which you can use in a whole variety of ways. And people are very familiar with electricity. The reason why we would want to have another way of moving energy around is because electricity is really hard to store. And so storage is actually the biggest advantage of hydrogen. I would say storage in two ways. One is the ability to move energy around as hydrogen in time so that you are consuming the energy at a different time from when it's produced. And the other is in space. You can actually produce hydrogen in a place where energy is cheap, maybe where renewable power is cheap or, or fossil fuels are cheap and there's CO2 storage available. And then you can consume it somewhere else. And this has led to you know, a real explosion of different ideas of how to do that, how to transform the hydrogen into something that is easier to store because hydrogen is famously a, a volatile light gas that is hard to trap transform it into things that are easier to store and to move around. And the, one of the things I really like about the study that we've been able to undertake compared to other things that I've seen in the past is just how comprehensive we've been able to be from the production technologies through to the applications and all of these different types of storage. And if we're asking the question, how do we move hydrogen about in space and time, we're not only talking about how do you compress it and put it in a tank or liquefy it to put it on a ship, but also how do you convert it into what are sometimes called synthetic fuels that can be transported just like oil is today and then used in some of the sectors that Jan mentioned. And this is an area of great interest for shipping and for aviation. You know, what's the best way? Is it to try to fuel planes using hydrogen and store hydrogen on board as a solid, as a gas, as a liquid? Or is it to transform that hydrogen into a fuel that looks just like kerosene? And so we've been able to try and pick up some of the, the different trends. Yes, so a sort of synthetic kerosene, so you're no longer pulling any more carbon out of the ground as fresh fossil fuel to then create a fresh CO2 emission but just uh, creating a virtuous cycle of we're going to synthesize the kerosene without taking anything out of the ground. We'll burn it in conventional jet engines, no need for any technology modification to the engine systems. And the end result is not adding any more carbon to the atmosphere than wasn't already there. Absolutely. You know, and attentive listeners might have realized that, you know, it all depends on where you get your carbon from. But that's perhaps another podcast because <laughs> it is, it's not easy to get carbon from non-fossil sources and people are working very hard on this as well. Yes, I would like to add to what Simon said that indeed it's a systemic transition. It's more complicated than just pushing one new technology to market uh, along an entire value chain with interdependencies in terms of uh, what technologies are needed or are available. Another interesting facet of this transition is that it involves a large diversity of players. So we have traditional players from the chemical industries that are reinventing themselves 
that are transitioning to, to new ways of uh, producing hydrogen. We also have other industries that are moving into the hydrogen space. We talked about the automotive industry. That's the, probably the best example. And we also have some uh, new players that are just reinventing their market or their, their industry. And uh, these are often startups. We have quite a lot of, uh, of startups uh, in that uh, hydrogen space. We have tracked them also in the study. And they are facing a huge challenge because they are mostly betting on the bringing new technology to market. So they are betting on innovation, which is very demanding in, t- in terms of cost and risk, especially in that uh, in the context of uh, such a systemic change. And it's important to emphasize here that they depend a lot for their success on patents because patents are a way for them to secure their investment, to enable investment in the long term. And we see that clearly in the data. So about uh, we identified about uh, 400 such startups active in hydrogen and uh, 70% of them have filed patent applications. And if we look at those that have succeeded and moved to, to the later stages of venture capital investment, more than 80% of them had already filed a patent application before. So patents are an important leverage for, for them in, uh, in bringing new technology to market. And uh, this matters because these startups are active in fields that uh, may be neglected uh, sometimes by established companies or that uh, established companies may be reluctant to explore because that may disrupt their business models. And we see for sure startups active in uh, clean hydrogen production, but also, for instance, in decarbonizing the production of hydrogen from fossil fuels or in new storage methods or in new fuels derived from uh, from hydrogen. So definitely we should pay attention to, to these smaller players. They will be clearly a part of the solution. Yeah, these rising stars are taking the risks. And if they're going to get the investment, patents are the thing that the investors are looking for. Is there anything that can possibly help cover the risks that they're taking and give them an asset at the end? I'd love to carry on with this chat, but alas, we're running out of time. It's been a huge amount of fun for me as an old chemist to be talking about chemical techniques and engineering and so on. But thank you, uh, our two experts, for everything you've shared today. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. If you want to know more about the hydrogen technologies we've been discussing, come and read the study on epo.org. And it's also at the IEA's website as well. But for today, from Jan, Simon and myself, it's... Au revoir. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org or on your favourite podcast platform. Let's talk innovation.